0: Do me a favor and turn in your Bible once again to the book of Exodus. We're in chapter 15 and we're in verses 22 through to 25. And let me remind you, if you're joining us for the first time, the, the journey that we've been on as a church. For, for the better part of this year, we have walked through the book of Exodus, although we've taken some breaks here and there to, to tackle other topics. And so we have seen the beginnings of the Exodus, Israel's time spent in slavery under Egyptian rule. We've seen God raise up Moses and his brother Aaron to speak on Yahweh's behalf, to demand that the Pharaoh let God's people go. And then we spent several weeks looking at the plagues in the Exodus, and we talked about the fact that these plagues are not just sort of God showing off, but each of them is targeted at one of the gods of Egypt, and so each of these plagues is God confronting idolatry, And then in the last few weeks, we have seen how finally Pharaoh relented. He released God's people and then changed his mind and corners them at the Red Sea. And so God makes a way of deliverance. He opens the Red Sea, splits the waters in two, and God's people are led safely through the waters. And then when the Egyptians try to pursue, God turns the waters back on them. So what was a door for Israel into newness of life is actually God's judgment for his enemies. And then last week we, we talked about the, the song of celebration that both Moses and Miriam sang at, at the shores of the Red Sea in response to what God has done. And it's hard to imagine sort of the level of excitement, the level of rejoicing that would have taken place on the, on the shores of the Red Sea among the people of Israel, we get maybe half of a chapter describing these songs that were sung. I'm inclined to think that's an abbreviated form of the actual party that Israel threw. You know, w- w- when we look back in scripture and look at the actual sort of storyline of Israel, we see that Israel has been in captivity. They've been under Egyptian rule for 400 years. That is nearly double the length of the existence of our country. And all of it has been spent in servitude. Generations rising up and hoping that they would be the ones that would be set free only to reach the end of their lives and say, it won't be me. Maybe it'll be my kids. Maybe it'll be my kids that are delivered by Yahweh. And that generation rising up and coming to the end of their lives and wondering, will their children spend their lives in servitude as well? But finally on the shores of the Red Sea, God's people are free. They're bound for the promised land. It seems as though all of this covenant language that God shared with Abraham is finally going to come true. But it's important to recognize that this story, this Exodus story that's been told countless times in movies and in Hollywood, it's it's not just Israel's. It doesn't just belong to the people who lived it, but in some strange way, the Exodus story is our story. It's the story of all who would be redeemed by God and brought into a life of faith. You you see this in the New Testament, which again and again uses Exodus language to describe the work of Jesus Jesus is the Passover lamb. We are described as being slaves to sin, and yet the Passover lamb purchases our freedom. The the Christian life is a life of exodus. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, the great German theologian writing in the 40s, describes it like this. He says, we too pass through the Red Sea, through the desert, across the Jordan, to the promised land. We with Israel fall into doubt and unbelief and through punishment and repentance experience again God's help and faithfulness. This is is our story. This is the shape of our journey from the freedom of the cross through to the promised land of the new heavens and the new earth. But we come to the point in the book of Exodus where the movies tend to stop. Most of the movies end at the Red Sea. And yet, the story of Exodus and our story continues in chapter 15, verse 22, we're told that then Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea and they went into the wilderness of Shur. They went three days in the wilderness and found no water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink the water of Marah because it was bitter. Therefore, it was named Marah. And the people grumbled against Moses saying, what shall we drink? And he cried to the Lord and the Lord showed him a log. And he threw it into the water, and the water became sweet. So I don't know if you're aware of this or not, but, but as a church, we as Baylife practice on Sunday mornings something called expositional preaching. Now if you've never heard of that term before, it's kind of a fancy seminary term. There's, there's a couple different ways that Protestants teach the Bible. One of them is called um, topical preaching. And the basic idea is that you pick a topic, and then you kind of gather all of the Bible verses around this topic, and you teach through that. So we've done this before, right? We've, we've taught series on marriage, and we'll, we'll use what Paul says in Ephesians, and we'll use what the Proverbs say, and we might look at Song of Solomon. We kind of jump around, and we pick all of the biblical passages that, that hone in on this topic, and that's how we teach. And there's nothing wrong with that. There's examples of preaching like that in the Bible. It's, it's a perfectly decent way to teach the Scriptures, but, but the other approach, and the one that we sort of lean more towards here at Baylife is expository preaching, which is where we pick one book of the Bible, and we start in chapter 1, verse 1, and we just work our way through to the end. And so rather than coming to the Bible and saying, here's what I want to talk about, what does the Bible say, we start with a book and say, whatever the Bible's talking about this week is what we're talking about. And you've seen that with 1 Peter and again with the book of Exodus. And one of the things that I like about expository preaching is that it forces us as a church and it forces me as a preacher to teach the passages that I would otherwise skip because I don't really know what to do with them. Maybe you sense that as I read our passage this morning. You know, anybody who's attempted the doomed New Year's resolution of a Bible in a year plan has come to passages like this where they're like, interesting, fun tidbit, no idea what to do with that. And this is such a passage, it can feel that way, right? Israel is in the wilderness, they can't find water, the water they do find tastes gross, so Moses throws a tree in the water and everything's good. And you kind of just look at it and go, I'm going to skip to John 3.16, right? I'm going to skip to something that I can better make sense of. And it feels strange to us, especially given everything that has just taken place, all right? We have just gone through these sort of climactic and, and movie-esque moments of, of Moses surviving the, the murder of the children of Israel in his infancy and being raised in Pharaoh's house. And then we, we move on to this dramatic series of plagues that, that have all of this fire and brimstone, and then we move from that to Israel being set free and an and entire uh, body of water parting so that they can walk through it and then coming back in and drowning Israel's enemies. It's all this epic stuff. And then all of a sudden we're just in the desert and they can't find any water. But, but here's what I want to say. As much as the big blockbuster moments of Exodus are our story as the church, these small, seemingly strange moments are equally our story as the church. The waters of Mara are every bit as much a part of the Exodus as the waters of the Red Sea. And just like God's miraculous deliverance from Egypt parallels our Christian life, so too does Israel's wandering in the desert just looking for water to drink. We don't know how long Israel lingered on the shores of the Red Sea, taking in what God has done, but like I said, I'm inclined to think it was a little bit longer than just singing two songs. There's a, there's a massive number of people that need to move, they've been on the run for days, possibly weeks, and so Israel camps by the Red Sea for some period of time before a passage picks up and then says, Moses made Israel set out from the Red Sea, and they went into the wilderness of Shur. A uh, Presbyterian theologian named Ligan Duncan, as he's preaching this passage, he comments on how strange the Hebrew is here. Moses made Israel go into the wilderness. Uh, this phrase of making only occurs at this particular part in all of the Old Testament. It's never used again, and it's this forceful terminology. Moses doesn't just tap Israel on the shoulder and say, hey guys, you think maybe, maybe it's time that we could kind of pack up and move on to the promised land? I think we've, we've had a nice rest here at the Red Sea. It's forceful. He's dragging them away from the Red Sea. I- implied in that is that they don't want to leave. They want to stay right where they are. It's as if the, the, the people of Israel want to linger at this place of deci- decisive victory. They want to bask in what God has done. They're not interested in facing what he might have for them next. And there's some parallels there in many of our Christian lives. So I, I grew up in the church I have been going to church for my whole life. The first 12 or 13 years was in a different denomination. The last 18 or so years has been here at Bay Life, which means that I have been to thousands of student ministry camps. That's an exaggeration. <laughs> but at least 20 or 30 student ministry camps. And the running joke in the office, because my office is in the student ministry section of the church, the running joke is that I'm like the camp hater And and they're always trying to get me to be excited about camp, and I'm always just grumpy. I'm like the Ebenezer Scrooge of student ministry camps. But this this is not a new development for me. I was this cynical even when I was a high school student. And I always went to camp because my friends went and because there was a lot of good that came from camp, but I always kind of had this jaded approach. But the reality is, is, when I was in high school, and, and I trust it's the same way for many of you who are students right now, camp was the church event you wanted to invite your non-Christian friends to. It was like the big evangelistic, this is the thing I can bring my friends to. Because there's a lot of hanging out, there's a lot of fun, but inevitably by the third night of camp, everybody's gonna be in tears, repenting of their sins. And it's probably just because none of them have slept and they're exhausted. But by the last night of camp, without fail, there were kids repenting and converting and swearing that they were going to break up with that boyfriend or girlfriend that they never should have dated in the first place. And, I, and I, I'm, being, I'm being kind of sarcastic here, but the, the reality is that there's a lot of good that came from camp. There's a lot of spiritual growth that comes from these sort of retreats and, and, and Almost without fail, there would always be somebody in my cabin, sort of towards the end, who would say something to the effect of, I wish we could stay here forever. And maybe, maybe you've been on a retreat where you've sensed that. Maybe you've been on a missions trip where you've sensed that or said that. Maybe you're guilty of saying that, which sounds like my worst nightmare when it comes to camp, right? It's like, no, I just want to go home. I don't want to play any more games. But ultimately, there there is something good about that, right? God God has moved in some profound way, in some unique sense. God has acted, and we just want to linger here and we want to celebrate that. There's nothing wrong with that sentiment. Moses and Miriam, they didn't do anything wrong by staying at the Red Sea and, and, and celebrating and singing and rejoicing in what God has done. It was right for them to do this. But the life of faith can't be content to linger over what God has done while ignoring what God has yet to do. Our job is to remember what God has done so that we can face what God has next for us. Israel doesn't want to do that. They want to stay on the mountaintop. They want to stay at camp. They want to stay on the missions trip. One of the most common ways that I think we we see this in our day and age is that I think there's many of us who've been Christians for two, three, four, five, 10, 15 years, and we have never grown any deeper than we were on the day that we first gave our lives to Christ. We're still struggling with the same sins that that led us to Jesus in the first place. We're not disciplined in prayer and Bible reading. The gospel hasn't touched our marriages and the way that we treat our spouses even though we've followed Jesus for 10 years. But you can recall with tears in your eyes the night that that pastor called you up and prayed for you. Can I just say if, if that's where you are, you're still standing by the Red Sea talking about the day that you walked the aisle but not moving from the milk of Christianity to the solid food of the deeper things of God. And man, if you find yourself here, know that I'm not here to, to, to crush you or condemn you but to say we as a church want to come alongside you and help you grow, to move on to the, to, to the deeper things of God. That's why we release things like articles and podcasts and videos. It's why we offer classes like church history and theology. It's why we encourage you to be involved in life groups and to, to enter into discipleship relationships because the life of faith begins at the Red Sea, but it can't stay there. Faith is not just forged on the mountaintop. It is forged in the wilderness. And so Moses drives the people of Israel into the wilderness to the waters of Mara. We're told that Israel journeyed for three days in the wilderness and they found no water, and then they came to Mara, but they could not drink the water because it was bitter. Therefore it was named Mara. Now we're gonna talk about the, the, the failures of Israel in this particular moment in just a second, but but I do want to clarify something. Israel has gone for three days through the desert, men, women, and children and livestock, and they have not found any water. The place that they arrive at, this place Mara, has water that that the text says was bitter. And I know when I first read that, I thought of an experience I had growing up. My my dad was raised in a part of Florida called Zoffo Springs. Has anybody heard of that? A couple people. Maybe you've just heard of it because I've told stories about my dad. (laughs) Um, Zoffo Springs has a great number of houses that are on wells, and they have something in, in the wells called sulfur water. So, so I heard everybody kind of groan a little bit, right? So sulfur water, if you're not from Florida or not familiar with uh, the, the well water situation, it's perfectly drinkable. It just smells bad. It, it just smells bad. There, there's nothing wrong with it per se. I mean, my dad is almost 60 years old, has drank well water all his life. It just is kind of gross smelling. So as a kid, I wouldn't touch it. It just repulsed me. And also I would have rather drank like Coca-Cola anyways. But the reality is it's fine. And so when when we read that the waters of Mara are bitter, I fear that we take sort of the sulfur water mentality and place it here and go, Israel's just being nitpicky, right? So what? It's been three days. Who cares if the water tastes a little bit gross? Drink it. But... Many scholars will point to this language and say they're not just describing water that's gross, they're describing water that's poisonous. The, the waters of Mara are not like sulfur water in Zapho Springs. The waters of Mara are toxic and will make Israel sick. So four days, no water, whole families, and livestock. And they've been on the run from an opposing army. They're not wrong to be at least a little bit concerned by that. Where Israel fails is that Israel, in response to this crisis, becomes forgetful and they become faithless. Let me unpack what I mean. Let's start with Israel's forgetfulness. Israel forgets the character of God and they fail to recognize how God's past action can inform their present situation. So if you go all the way back to the book of Genesis, the Bible begins with water. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and the earth was formless and void, and the Spirit of God hovered over the surface of the waters. And God said, He begins to speak, and he separates the water from the waters, and he separates the sea from the dry land, and then you skip a little bit further into the Bible, and in judgment, God sends the floodwaters to cover the surface of the earth, and then God speaks, and by his breath, the waters recede after Noah and his family have been delivered, and then you skip a little bit further, and you hear the story of Hagar and Ishmael, Abraham's servant and his son, and because of family conflicts... They're both sent into the wilderness to die. They can't find any water and then God leads them to a spring. And then you can go back just a a couple chapters earlier in Israel's history where Moses is put in a basket in the waters of the Nile and God preserves him. And then you can jump forward a little bit and the drinkable waters of the Nile God turns to blood. And then you can jump three days previous In Israel's history, when they come to this giant body of water and think that it's going to be the end of them, it's called the Red Sea. We talked about it two weeks ago. And God opens the waters, and they pass through it. At every juncture, God shows himself to be the Lord over the waters. That the wind and the waves obey him. That he can take what gives life in the Nile and bring death from it. He can take what seems to deal death for Hagar and Ishmael and he can bring them to springs of living water. From the foundations of the world, the God of Israel has been in the business of subduing the waters. And so they come to this water that's not drinkable and they immediately forget all of that. They forget what happened just three days ago at the Red Sea and they go, We're doomed. This is it. We're done. Game over. What are we going to do about this body of water that's giving us problems? When they asked the same question at the beginning of the week when they came to the Red Sea. Before we come down too hard on Israel for their forgetfulness, it's, it's important to take stock of our own lives. I would ask you think about this past week, think about the frustrations you've encountered. The, 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 the road bumps at your job, the hard conversations with your spouse, the doctor's visits that brought news that you were dreading, the, the, the battles that you're waging with your kids. And I would ask, at any point in any of these stumbling blocks, did you forget about the character of God? Because if you're being honest, if, if I'm being honest, the answer to all of these things would be yes. I am just as likely to forget who God is and what he's like. And when we forget, sin is not far. This this is probably one one of the most frequent commands in all of Scripture is remember. The most frequent command in Scripture, as as far as I can tell, is don't be afraid. But following closely behind that is Remember. Remember what I've done. Don't forget about it. Make sure your children and your children's children don't forget about it. Because Israel's forgetfulness leads to their faithlessness. They've forgotten about who God is. They've forgotten about his character. They've forgotten about his love for them. And so they're convinced that the waters of Mara are the end. This is it. God has led us out here to die. And so they become faithless. Now, can I tell you, that temptation that Israel faces, it lives in my heart. Every time I encounter difficulty, the temptation is to think, this is it, this is the one where God abandons me. This is the one where he just lets me fall. Like, just a test case of that, I went to the doctor three weeks ago for like a general checkup and every time I go to the doctor, I am convinced that that is the visit where they will find something catastrophically wrong with me. And I was going to like the the general like yearly physical where they just check your blood pressure, they check all the, you know, they do the blood work and all that stuff and the nurse put the, the clip on my finger that monitors your heart rate and starts asking me questions about, you know, the last year and medical history and all that stuff and my heart rate starts going up and it gets higher and higher and higher to the point that i'm now sweating profusely and the nurse looks up to check my heart rate and goes is is your like resting heart rate normally 180 beats per minute i was like not normally but normally when i'm sitting in a doctor's office it is and so she so she stops the whole test right and she's like she takes the clip off my finger and she's like you need to close your eyes and breathe you need to calm down. And so she tries to get my mind off it. And she's like, so, so what, do you, what do you do for a living? And I'm like, I'm a pastor. I'm a pastor, <laughs> right? So this is like not my finest testimony moment. And maybe I'm this stressed because I'm a pastor. Who knows? Right, because in each and every potential hurdle, I am tempted to think that God is not for me and that this is the time where he'll abandon me. That's Israel's temptation, that's that's our temptation. But the reality is, if we remember, if we remember God's character, if we remember his faithfulness, then, then we'll know, we'll know that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, even when it's the news that we fear, he does not leave us and he does not forsake us. But he abides with us. This is exactly why we have to remember, and this is also why we need people in our lives who will call us to remember God's work in the past so we can trust Him to be faithful in the future. So in response to this crisis, we're told that the Israelites, they grumbled at Moses. They went to Moses and said, "What shall we drink?" This is the first of a a cycle of three grumblings in this portion of Exodus. The pattern is the same every time. Israel's in the wilderness. They encounter some sort of a lack. In the beginning, this passage, it's water. The next passage, they don't have anything to eat, and that's where manna comes from. And then they go to the next passage, and they're out of water again. And every time they encounter a crisis, they begin to grumble, and each time, they get a little bit more bold until they're starting to say things, which you'll see in chapter 16. They're starting to say things like, we would rather have died in Egypt where there was food to eat than to have died out here. They actually said that back at the Red Sea too, didn't they? Weren't there graves in Egypt that you led us to this water to die? And, And in that moment, when they say things like that, they forget two things. One, they forget the goodness of God. But two, they forget the horror of slavery. They forget the horror of what God has delivered them from. You know, if you go back to Exodus chapter one, early on, Moses is writing and he says, the Egyptians made the Israelites' lives bitter. And he uses the same word that he uses to describe Mara. Right, back in Egypt, it's not just the water that's bitter, it's all of life. Everything is made bitter by their captivity and their enslavement. And yet they come to this one stumbling block, the bitter waters, and they think that it would be better to go back to a bitter life than to trust God to deal with the situation. And we do the same thing. Like how often do we come to trials and tribulations and road bumps in the Christian life and frustrating circumstances and we immediately start to run back to the sins that God has set us free from. We pull out the phone and we start to text the ex, even though we know where that's going to go. We pick up the bottle and we start to medicate. We let our anger fester because it feels better to be mad than to forgive. We may not think we're saying this, but what we are saying is, I would rather go back to the bitterness of life before Jesus than trust Jesus To bring his grace into the bitterness of this present situation. But can I just tell you, if you find yourself there right now, if that's your temptation, running back to Egypt won't make life less bitter. It won't make the water in the wilderness sweet. Only grace can do that. Only grace can take the bitterness of life and make it bearable. And so they grumble. To Moses saying what shall we drink and Moses cries out to the Lord Moses at this point I think understands how finicky the people of Israel are and he realizes that that he's just gonna need to rely on God to show him what it is that he ought to do and so Moses cries out to God in the midst of this admittedly very difficult circumstance what should I do there's no water to drink the water in front of us is poisonous and the Lord showed him a log. You expect it to be something miraculous, right? The Lord says, Stretch out your staff, and behold, the waters will turn into blue oases. <laughs> and, you know, speak over the waters and, and watch them tremble into purity. No, God goes, Hey, there's a log. This is one of those passages in the Bible, and there's a few of them that cause people to try and find some sort of a naturalistic description of what's going on. Because I think for for some of us as Christians, there's just these weird parts of the Bible that we're really hoping has a natural explanation. So I think we're well meaning when we do this, but you can you can look online and find countless websites dedicated to proving the fact that somebody can actually live in the stomach of a fish for three days, so Jonah's not nearly as weird as everyone thinks it is. It's every bit as weird as everyone thinks it is. If you watch the History Channel for long enough, you'll, you'll see the special in which uh, somebody puts forward this theory that all of the plagues in the Exodus are the result of a volcano that erupted on the other side of the world and that blocked out the sun which caused the, the frogs and the gnats to leave hibernation early and so actually, all of this really, really outlandish stuff that happens in Exodus, actually there's just a perfectly normal explanation for it. I don't really find any of that super compelling. And people try to do that with this passage. I mean, they have scoured the landscape looking for a tree or a log. Some translations say log, some say tree. Looking for a a piece of wood that has some sort of purification properties that would make sense of how this log dropped in the water, suddenly made it all pure. Nobody's found anything. Right? There's, There's no miraculous logs growing in the wilderness near Sinai. As far as we can tell, there is nothing special about the tree. It is just an ordinary tree that God uses to bring about the miraculous. But if you read sort of the, the narrative of Scripture, what you find is that God actually uses trees all the time. Right? You, you, let's go back to Genesis. We've been talking a lot about Genesis God creates the world and then he plants a garden and calls it Eden in the east. And in that garden, he causes trees to spring up that are good for food and pleasing to the eye. And in that garden, there is the tree of life and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you can go forward a little bit to Abraham, the, the founder of the nation of Israel. And Yahweh meets with Abraham in Genesis beneath the oak trees of Marah. Jump forward a little bit further and people begin to be described as trees. Trees become an image of faithfulness. So Joseph in Genesis 49 is described as a tree or in Psalm chapter one, the the life of the righteous is described as a, a life that is like a tree planted by streams of water. Jump all the way to Revelation and that tree of life is present in the streets of the new heavens and the new earth. It's growing right in the midst of God's people. And Revelation says that its leaves are for the healing of the nations. There are trees all over the Bible. Actually, one uh, scholar uh, predicted, not predicted, but sort of surmised that other than human beings, trees are the most frequent living thing mentioned in Scripture. But in the middle of all of these trees, there's one that looms larger than the others. It's ordinary. It's insignificant. It wasn't planted among the cedars of Lebanon. It didn't spring up in Eden. There is nothing about this tree that would draw anyone's attention to it. The only unique thing about this tree is that it was carved by the Romans into the shape of a cross, and on Good Friday, it held the body of the Son of God. And on that tree... Christ drank down the full bitterness of our evil and our darkness and God's wrath against it. There's nothing special about the tree by Mara save for the fact that God had ordained that that ordinary tree would make sweet the bitterness of life in the desert. Generations later, that same God would use an ordinary tree carved into the shape of a cross to take ruined, bitter sinners and cause streams of living water to well up inside of them. And that tree, unlike the one at Mara, that tree, the cross, still has power to bring life in the wilderness. That tree still has power to purify what sin has corrupted. That tree still has the power to bring resurrection life to places that seem haunted by death. That is if we put our faith in its power. So the Christian life is an exodus. It begins in bondage, slavery to sin. It moves through the Passover and the miraculous deliverance through the Red Sea. But it always leads into the wilderness, where we learn what it means to depend on God's grace daily, where we learn what it means to remember his promises and his past faithfulness, and to rest in his power to make sweet what sin has turned bitter. So I pray for you, for us as a church, that this week we wouldn't grumble, we wouldn't complain, we wouldn't forget but we would remember God's goodness as we face the world and trust that he will never leave us or forsake us and that even in the wilderness, he is bringing life. Would you pray with me? Father, we are grateful for your mercy and your kindness. God, we're thankful that even when we walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you cause life to spring up. Even when life seems bitter, Lord, you make it sweet. God, we thank you that you have shown yourself faithful so we can trust that you will be faithful. Help us remember Jesus. Help us remember your faithfulness. Help us remember the cross, this decisive moment where you spoke with clarity that you love us, that you will never leave us and you will never forsake us and you will bring life even in the midst of the wilderness. Help us to follow you there, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.